in childhood, like food just doesn't end up being fully neutral, unfortunately. And I'm not saying that we need to look at a chocolate bar and be like, this is a good food. Like, I don't believe in this, like, oh, all food should be good. Like, I think that we need to understand, of course, there are foods that are healthier than others, right? But it doesn't need to mean something about us. And this is where I start to see some of that, those psychological factors, because at the end of the day, like when we start to distinguish like our behaviors around food as good or bad, it's not just about the food that's the problem. It's about what it means about us. Have you ever wondered whether there's actually a sustainable way to balance a healthy and meaningful life with your busy schedule? Well, you're in luck, Balancer, because I did too. And the Balance Theory podcast is now a dedicated space to be curious in finding a balance that just works. Because since we're being honest here, balance isn't a one-size-fits-all. I'm your host, Erica, and let's dive into today's episode. All right, Balancers, today's guest is a psychological nutritionist, hypnotherapist, and eating behavior expert with an educational background in behavioral neuroscience. She runs a vibrant practice that focuses on the connection between mental health, nutrition, and our relationship with food, which is a synergy I was instantly drawn to, and I can't wait to learn more about today on the show. So it's a pleasure to welcome Jordana Saad to the show today. Jordana, a warm welcome. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. No, it's I'm excited to get into a topic that I've had my moments, let's say, or journey with in the past. I think it's a, an ongoing relationship with food that we generally deal with, and understanding the psychology behind it, I think, is very empowering. Uh, and actually can help us make it really practical in terms of how we approach it. But before we kind of dive into the pragmatic, like technical side of it, I'd love to know how you kind of came to doing this type of work. How did you fall into what I'd say is quite a niche, like psychology and, and nutrition? I'd love to hear kind of your backstory. Yeah. So my story started probably similar with you. Like this is based on my experience that really brought me here. Um, but so my story started really when I was quite young. I remember being the only obese kid in class. So I was obese as a child and it was just a very different time. Then obesity rates were a lot lower and I was bullied, of course, and made fun of. And when I was eight years old, I was playing tag and I caught this boy that I had a crush on. And I just, he said, as soon as I caught him, he goes, fatty caught me in front of the whole class. And I just remember this moment, like it was yesterday And it was that moment that I was like, enough's enough. And so basically all I really knew about nutrition at that age, I was eight. So all I knew was that the more I ate, the bigger I got. And so what I did was I just decided to starve myself. And um, I did, I lost a lot of weight as an eight-year-old. My mom would pack my lunches and I would just throw them out and I would come home and complain about a stomach ache and not eat dinner. And I received a lot of validation from the people around me. So you know, the cutest boy in school that I had a crush on started talking to me. All of a sudden I had friends. Even my parents were like, oh, now we can see your beautiful face. Like you're growing up, you're turning into such a beautiful woman. And it really just taught me at a young age that being thin meant I was lovable and accepted and being overweight meant I wasn't. And this just spiraled into decades of, of, you can imagine, disordered eating And eventually in high school, I started using substances. And originally, I think it was mainly to fit in, to be accepted, which is all I really ever wanted. And it had this kind of domino positive effect, if you will, at that time where I was escaping from inner pain and it was also keeping my weight down. I became more interested in substances than food. And so in high school, um, I became quite addicted to cocaine, marijuana, 
MDMA, all of that stuff. And I went to university by some grace of God. And in Montreal, I'm in Canada. And so in Montreal, it's a really big party city. And I really got lost in the world of cocaine addiction. And when I was in my second year, I got kicked out from school and my parents made me move back home. And I didn't really have access to cocaine at that time. And so I started just drinking. And so I was like an alcoholic by the age of 21. And I met my now husband and actually got pregnant. And that baby saved my life because I couldn't use these substances anymore. But the one thing like where this all started came back with a full vengeance and it was food. I started to eat in this very addictive way and noticed that the way that I was using food was very similar to the way that I would use substances. Like I couldn't just eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. It just kept going and going and going. And so I vowed to get down at the bottom of my eating disorder. And when my son was nine months old, I became a nutritionist and I graduated as valedictorian with first class honors. And I was hired right out of school to work with a medical doctor. And so in this practice, we, we grew this beautiful obesity practice, but here I'm handing out meal plan after meal plan. And like, nobody's getting any better. Because the reality is, like most of us know an apple's healthier than a chocolate bar, right? But some of us choose the chocolate bar anyways. And so I became really obsessed with understanding the motivation behind human behavior, especially as it relates to our relationship to food and self-sabotage. So it was at that point that I went back to school to do like um, a master's and PhD in behavioral psychology. I'm not finished. I'm still like in the process of everything, uh, but I do have my degree in behavioral psychology. And really understanding the psychological components to my human behavior changed my life. And it was just so powerful. Like I had to share it with other people. So that's what brought me here. Wow. That is a very, um, that's a very powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that with everyone and with me. I really appreciate when people land in a place where the work they're doing and what they're sharing has come from such an authentic part of what they've learned or kind of self healed or learned on their own journey. I think it's yeah. a really beautiful thing to be coming from that place and sharing. And it's just kind of got me thinking, at what point do you feel like people would turn to or need a nutritionist versus a psychological nutritionist, right? Because it's that deeper layer of, I don't just kind of need the direction and top level idea of nutrition education around nutrition. It's something a little bit deeper. Is that kind of the stepping stone to when you would require that is a, are there any kind of red flags or signs as to when say the work and, and the extra qualifications the study you're doing now becomes more important or kind of the first step for somebody? Absolutely. That's a really good question. Actually. I don't think I've ever been asked that. I really believe education and nutrition is so important and we really don't get enough of it. So when we're in those, you know, like teenage, even elementary school years, like this is when we really need to be learning about nutrition. But the reality is like, at this point, especially with most of the individuals that I meet um, in their adult life, like there's actually way too much information about nutrition out there. It gets very confusing. It's like, what do I follow? Do I follow keto? Do I follow paleo? Do I go high carb? You know, it's just, there's too much. Do you think that at that point at school, we almost actually don't really even care because we're more interested, like you kind of shared with fitting in or looking a certain way, or, you know, we've got metabolisms that we can eat anything and it doesn't matter. Do you think like we're actually not even receptive at that point in our lives anyway? Totally. But I also think that that's just because we've been conditioned to kind of ignore like literally what I believe is the most important relationship we'll ever have in our life. Like our mm. relationship 
It is our relationship to life. It is our life-giving substance. And we don't learn that from an early age. Like we, it's often something that's neglected. Um, parents really take over that role. And so kids don't really have uh, communication or even their hand in the food that they're eating. And I really believe that if we start education early on, then we can avoid a lot of this in the future, but it has to be done in a very specific way. Like it can't be done from like a restrictive good food, bad food type of way. Um, because most of the people that I talked to grew up with moms who were in that like low fat world, right? Like it was all low fat, low and low fat sour cream, low fat everything. And so now we're the the babies of of those people. And, and it, totally. And and it's caused a huge problem. And so to answer your first question, like where a nutritionist is really, really valuable is in somebody who's never really had a dysregulated relationship to food. Like, let's say that, um, you know, you're going through something and you, you genuinely don't know what's healthy and what's not because it's very difficult, especially when we're looking at things like greenwashing and products are like, oh, it's gluten free. If it's gluten free, does it mean that it's healthy? Like mm -hmm. a nutritionist can really help you to understand what works with your body specifically and and also kind of clear up any of the misconceptions around uh, the in nutrition information. If there is like the red flags for me are if there is a history of disordered eating, um, if there's a history of like self-sabotage, if you have behaviors that you want to change around food, like let's say I want to um, stop eating sugar, but I keep doing it anyways, like that to me is a big red flag. And that's where the psychology component really comes into play. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like most things, right? If you want to change a habit and you're finding it difficult or you're facing resistance or you've maybe just got that habit so deeply ingrained, it, it's difficult, then it often requires a psychological shift. And that's not limited to food. It's anything. If you want to try something new, if you want to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, you have to make that mindset shift. And so I can definitely appreciate how that would apply to food and food habits. Um, I guess on this note, what are some of the psychological factors behind eating habits that generally you feel are quite common or that a lot of us kind of experience? And I appreciate that it's going to look different for every single person, but just kind of curious from a high level point of view, if you can give us some examples of some of the factors um, that come into our eating habits. Yeah. So I think right off the bat, like I was trying to convey in childhood, like food just doesn't end up being fully neutral, unfortunately. And I'm not saying that we need to look at a chocolate bar and be like, this is a good food. Like, I don't believe in this, like, oh, all food should be good. Like, I think that we need to understand, of course, there are foods that are healthier than others, right? But it doesn't need to mean something about us. And this is where I start to see some of that, those psychological factors, because at the end of the day, like, when we start to distinguish, like, our behaviors around food as good or bad, it's not just about the food that's the problem. It's about what it means about us. And so let's say I want to lose weight and I eat McDonald's. So I might have a thought of, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And if that thought is I shouldn't have done that and I have a belief of like an, a core wound is what we call them, but it, like I'm not lovable, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy then that thought is just going to validate the core wound mm. of I'm not worthy. I'm not, you know what I mean? And so your brain is never going to make you a liar. Your brain is constantly searching for validation in the truths that it believes about itself. The problem is we often don't have a very good self-concept or our self-concept is very conditional, um, meaning that, oh, if I behave in a good way, I'm a good girl. And if I don't behave in a good way, then like I'm bad or something bad's going to happen. And this is where I start to find the like emotional components around food 
uh, start to take a little bit of a turn because it's no longer about like, oh, I'm just having this meal. And, um, you know, this one's a little bit more highly caloric than another one. It's like what this meal means about me. And once we mm. make it really personal, that's when we start to see the psychological and emotional side take a turn. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and it's something I learned in therapy. I've shared on the podcast before this juncture, I guess, between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind, meaning consciously you have a goal, you want to lose weight, you want to tone up, whatever it is, right? But subconsciously you have limiting beliefs or like you said, core wounds about things you actually genuinely believe about yourself. And so consciously when you're trying to do something to contradict that or to change that, the stubborn mind who's always trying to be right is going to look for things to reinforce that. So I just think it's interesting when we zoom out, like it's, yes, appearing or presenting as like a food habit but it actually comes back to limiting beliefs and like core beliefs we have which probably is not just showing up in your food habits but probably there's like commonalities across other areas like whether it's procrastination or the way you work or just generally in other areas of your life so I think that's like really interesting and it actually has prompted a thought in my mind when especially when you're talking about the neutrality of food, it being good, bad, and and how that has like an ongoing effect to how you, what it means about yourself. It mm. kind of spurred me off on a little bit of a tangent, thinking about allergies and sensitivities. And I yeah. bring this up and I want to kind of talk about a personal experience and then I'll kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah. I remember when I was first kind of experimenting with fad diets, keto, um, I was calorie counting, I didn't really have a goal in mind. I was just trying to be disciplined with food, right? And I was eating very, very clean to a point where if I would quote unquote cheat or have a slice of pizza or do something, it would physically make me sick, like yeah. to a point where I was like, I'm actually gluten intolerant. Like I can't tolerate gluten. But the second I shifted that mindset and I was like, I train really hard. I'm eating to fuel my body. Like I generally eat well all the time. I can enjoy or indulge in foods I like that are quote unquote less healthier from time to time. All of a sudden I wasn't gluten intolerant or it's like that idea of when you go on holidays, like you don't have any stomach aches. So I'm really yeah. curious to know how this potentially has a role to play in sensitivities or allergies, if any. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where stuff, it starts to get pretty interesting because I can't deny that there is science out there that says like we run the food intolerance test in my practice all the time, because if let's say a client's having almonds um, every day and it, her weight's very stubborn. So almonds is a good food. Like I mean, it's healthy, right? But if it's not healthy for you, then like we want to know those things. We want to know like what's happening. But in my mind, we actually never blame the food. We blame the terrain. And so this is where stuff starts to get really interesting because we can't deny the science. However, there's something that's so much more powerful than the research, and that is whatever your brain thinks. Like your brain is the only thing in charge of your body. Without the brain, the body is nothing. It's a shell. Like if I were to walk and stub my toe, I would not feel that pain until the brain tells me to feel that pain. And so everything that's going on in your internal environment is because of like thoughts that you're thinking, that you're reinforcing, and it just kind of like amplifies that feedback. It's such an interesting story because I actually had a very similar thing happen to me where I was on low carb candida diet. If I even smelled a cookie, I swear I got a headache and I, I like couldn't have anything. And now all of a sudden, like I have this really free relationship to food. Nothing bothers me. Sometimes I have dairy. Sometimes I have gluten. You know, it's not a part of my everyday life, but it's like I can and I don't even react to it. And mm -hmm. so there is, of course, um, your 
reality is going to validate and reinforce whatever you think it is. And it's going to hype, like make it bigger than it really is. Now let's talk about sensitivities just for a second, because typically when we become sensitive to something, what's happening is like, there usually is a stressor. So stress in general is going to weaken the immune system. So stress can be like physical activity, right? Physical activity is so healthy for us, but it is a stressor. And so whatever we're putting into our minds when we have that stress at the same time is actually going to create, um, like reduce the immune system. And then when we eat these foods that tend to be a bit more inflammatory, it's going to get into the bloodstream and the, bl the blood's going to go, this doesn't belong here and create like food immune complexes. So when you're doing an IgG test or a food intolerance test, like, yes, the foods that are coming up, you are intolerant to. But again, like if there's a lot of foods on there, we don't blame the food. We blame like, why can't the body handle a little bit of this and a little bit of that? And that's mm -hmm. when we start to strengthen the actual terrain of the body rather than just cutting out foods altogether because it's not realistic. Like, we don't mm -hmm. live in a world where I, I don't want to live in a world where I can't have cake. Like that's just not, not for me. So yeah. 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 No, that's interesting. And I, I am very much about like get to the source holistic kind of approach to a point where if I was ever told I was dairy intolerant, I'd be trying to work out the source of that because I have not been that way my whole life. Um, question, yeah. someone who's listening, maybe they know that they're dairy intolerant, gluten intolerant. How do we know if it's a genuine intolerance, like maybe as a, as a makeup of their DNA or just what they can handle or not, or if it's directly caused by stress? Or is it a case that every intolerance is has a source and it's all figure outable, for lack of a better word? Or, yeah. you know, is there a line between genuine intolerances and ones we've kind of conjured up in our mind because of our contextual circumstance? And how do yeah. we kind of get to the bottom of that? Yeah. So right off the bat, things like dairy and gluten and like just your top foods that tend to be more inflammatory like they are inflammatory. So we can't deny that like scientific fact. And a lot of that has to do with the way that they're produced, the pesticides, all of those things. Most of the time when we're gluten intolerant, we're actually not even responding to the gluten. We're responding to how the pesticide affects the molecule of gliadin, which is like gluten, right? So, so yes, those things are inflammatory, but when we have them in very small exposures, it's not going to cause such a big eruption, right? And so like, I mean, the first thing is like, how do we know? Okay. So you can test, like we always test, don't guess so that we know exactly what it is. But the goal when we test is not so that we just cut out all these foods. The goal is how do we then like in a micro way, reintroduce it into our body. So our body can actually handle it because mm. I want you to think about your body as like a barrel. Um, this is called the barrel effect. This is not my own term. The, uh, the first time I heard this was Stephen Cabral. And then I learned it in school too. But with the barrel effect, it's like everything that happens to us, we just add to the barrel. Okay. We're late for work, stress, add it to the barrel. Oh, now we had a big dairy ice cream, add it to the barrel. Like all these stressors add to the barrel and eventually the barrel tips over. And that's when we start to see the symptoms. And so if we're continually unloading the barrel, like we really shouldn't be experiencing those negative symptoms. Now, if I were to have, like, I'm quite dairy intolerant. So if I were to have ice cream four days in a row, yeah, like I'm not going to feel great on the fifth day, but the first day I really don't feel anything at all. And so I think it's really about finding this healthy balance, right? Between like knowing, knowing your body, knowing your own makeup and being able to expose yourself in moderation and being okay with that.
Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So when you say unloading the barrel or not overloading it, you mean just kind of like working out a way to make that work with your routine. And and I say that because when I was doing like meal plans and stuff, I found a really interesting thing, which is just what you said, which is I'd have quinoa one day, fine, second day, fine. The third day I had it, I found mm. like my my stomach couldn't handle it. So it's like now I know I can't have a quinoa or a grain too many days in a row and it's just about spreading it out. So now that visual makes sense to me, kind of like the third day of quinoa just just topped it over, um, which is is quite. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Interesting. So you're saying that sensitivities and allergies and whatnot, like they're a very real thing. Everyone has a baseline, I guess, of different things they can tolerate or not naturally. Uh, but, But sometimes we can conjure it up more than maybe what it is based off the way we're thinking about the foods, right? Do you think it comes down to that it's good or bad kind of mentality? Or do you think there are a few other like common psychological approaches we take that can kind of mix it up? Yeah, it's like, and this is where more of the functional medicine side comes in, because you asked me like what the root of these, like, we're not necessarily born dairy intolerant, right? The dairy has been natured. And so of course, it's going to affect us. But like, really, when I see sensitivities in the body, it comes down to like, what type of microbes you have? Like, do you have parasites? Or do you have kids? And so when we are working with the microbes, then um, for example, like we all have candida. Candida is a yeast. It lives inside of us. It, it's supposed to be there in a very small ratio, but when it starts to proliferate and become systemic, we start to re- like react to things more intensely. And so, uh, basically, if we if we can keep the microbes in check, like if we can balance everything out, truly, it is about balance. Where we're not overfeeding the candida in certain circumstances, and then you know the the next we're not overdoing it with stress too, even then we're unloading the barrel at the same time, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like it's not just unloading the barrel in that we're spreading everything out and it's just about food. It's also about, are you sleeping? Like, are you drinking enough water? Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So now if we're looking at it from a more proactive point of view, if we know that we have a really challenging or really stressful kind of time coming up to buffer around that, are there stock standard foods that you would say kind of add to stress because of their natural inflammatory effect that we should maybe largely avoid because I'm all about being proactive, right? So rather than fixing it after the fact, I'm like, well, if I know, I don't know, having chili when I'm super stressed is going to be extra inflammatory, I might just avoid it if I know I'm starting a new job next week. You know, are there any? is there anything like that? Um, caveat, of course, that everyone is unique and, and working with a professional is obviously always the best approach. But just in general, were there any foods out of curiosity that you say are more inflammatory and kind of work maybe to contribute to stress in already heightened moments when those other lifestyle factors are already kind of at their peak? Yeah. So 
whenever anything is inflammatory in the gut, we also need to understand that it is causing inflammation in the nervous system too, right? So there is that gut brain connection. And so there's a chemical that's released um, when we have a lot of dairy, it's called LPS. I, for the life of me, couldn't pronounce the, the full thing um, eloquently here. So I'm just going to leave that It's easier to there. remember. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. LPS. Um, and it is neuroinflammatory, right? And so if we are going into a stressful thing and we're having like tons of, I would say dairy, gluten, corn, or like the top ones, egg whites, I see on everybody's food intolerance test. And then if you have a lot of like gas, bloating, gut stuff going on, then I would avoid some of the nuts because the nuts tend to grow toxins and bacteria and those things on them. But the top ones are dairy, gluten, um, corn, and egg whites. And so if we're having these foods, especially in large amounts, like it is going to contribute to the, the, the stress because it's causing neuroinflammation, which might increase anxiety. So for me, when I have dairy in excess, it's not that, you know, I have loose stools like my husband or my son, it's that I, I get headaches and migraines and I, I feel anxious. And so it actually affects my mood more than anything. And actually one of my family members is uh, schizophrenic and with him, we, when we take dairy out of the diet altogether, like he almost has no episodes. And so wow. it's really interesting to see how, of course, like we can't deny some of these foods are like, they do add to, they, they, definitely affect our, our mental health, our physical health. But I actually think that if we are very stressed, it's more powerful to introduce these inflammatory foods in very small amounts, like a micro amount, because what we're doing there is we're teaching the body how to accept it when it's in a stressful situation, but it has to be like one or two bites. It can't be like a whole bowl of ice cream. Yeah, yeah that makes absolutely makes sense. Um, thoughts on coffee? interested to hear kind of where you feel that sits. I, I just, I like getting everyone's opinion, um, you know, without, without kind of labeling things as good or bad, just in, in general, um, do you have any kind of thoughts on the role of coffee, whether it has certain benefits or just general, any thoughts? Yeah. So coffee's got a lot of benefits. I love coffee. I have a cup a day. Uh, I don't think we need to extend beyond one cup. And I think if you are reacting to coffee negatively, then it's time to start digging a little bit deeper into what is it about this coffee that's making me have a negative reaction. And so coffee, is, as we know, is heavily sprayed. It's one of the, the beans holds so much mold. And so if we are going to be drinking coffee, we would just want to source as organic as possible. And I find that that already helps with people who uh, experience negative symptoms from coffee. And especially for women and how complex our hormones are, my most of my audience is focused on, um, they're all like either identify with being a food addict or an overeater or a binge eater and have a goal of wanting to lose weight. And so what we find is that coffee is actually really beneficial for um, satiety. And it actually works the same way that something like Ozempic, which I'm not recommending at all, works, but, but it's on the GLP-1 receptor, right? So it actually reduces our hunger. So there's benefits that way. However, if the, the woman's hormones are um, dysregulated where there's a lot of stress in that woman's environment, it's very similar to long periods of fasting for women specifically having a coffee on an empty stomach can actually make the weight more stubborn. And so I find that with my clients when they're like, I don't even eat very much. I just have a coffee. I don't eat anything until like right before bed. And I'm like, or dinner time. I'm like, well, that's kind of the problem, right? Because coffee can have this 
amazing benefit where caffeine actually was the very first weight loss drug studied. And so people would take it when they would go to the gym and uh, in, in capsules and it works. However, it doesn't take into consideration your specific makeup. So for my clients sure. who are very stressed out and have really stubborn weight, I, I don't often recommend coffee on an empty stomach or even just long fasting periods because you'll start to run on adrenaline and the body will, instead of going in and burning stored fat for energy, will just end up running on adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Thanks for giving your input. I, I'm just, like I said, curious to always hear um, different professionals insight into the, the topic of coffee. And I'll, I'm glad to say like most people do say it has really beautiful benefits, um, obviously used in moderation and to your own specific needs. Um, but just yeah. to kind of wrap up, uh, have you of recent or just in general in your studies, in your practice, come across like any really interesting science or piece of research on the psychology of nutrition and like eating habits that just really interesting to share. Yeah, there's so many. Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. So uh, this study really changed my life like when I read it. And so I'll share it with you guys. And I first heard this study. I first actually learned the study in school and then I heard it again being reinforced on the Andrew Huberman podcast. So I just want to make sure I'm leaving credit where credit's due. Um, but this study is really about eating and emotions. And so what happens is it's, it's all about how our thoughts can actually impact the food that we're eating. So this study is done by Leah Crum um, from Stanford, and it's called Mind Over Milkshake. Okay, so what she did, this is the coolest thing. She took two milkshakes. One milkshake, was she wrote down highly caloric. The milkshakes are identical. So she took two identical milkshakes. On one milkshake, she wrote highly caloric. And on the other milkshake, she wrote low caloric. And then she had two groups of people. So she gave one, the, the highly caloric milkshake to the group of people. And what they did was they studied the biometrics after they drank the milkshake so that everyone in the group would drink the milkshake and they would measure, okay, insulin spiked, leptin went up like and uh, cholesterol up. And so it's like they drank something that was highly caloric. And then with the other group that said the low caloric, they drank this, the milkshake and they measured the biometrics after that. And they saw like insulin very slowly rose, the leptin slowly rose as if they were drinking something that was very healthy. Wow. And then what they did was they switched it. So it's not like one group was healthier than the others. Like it was very well controlled. Right. And so this was insane because the milkshakes were completely identical. And so what this really taught us is that what you're eating actually isn't as important as what you think about what you're eating. So your thoughts wow. about food can actually change your physiological response to it. That's like crazy. So, so crazy. When I when I eat my burger next, I just have to tell myself it's low calorie and super healthy. <laughs> no, it's hilarious. So if you're eating the donut and you're like, this is going straight to my thighs, like it is. You you're literally telling your body manifesting it. Hundred percent. Right. And so That's I so actually crazy. get my clients to, when I get my clients to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and go, I'm a fat burning machine. Like that's like a practice I make my clients do. I also get them when they feel really like we've all had indulgent meals. And the most triggering part of overeating is feeling the physical fullness. It's like the the, the physical cue tells the brain like, oh, I did, I did something not great. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's in those moments that I get my clients to be like, oh, my body knows exactly how to digest this. And when we can shift the mindset around what we're eating, it's incredible what we can accomplish. I used to smell a cookie and gain five pounds. And now like I have whatever I want and I don't gain any weight. And, and it's, it really is about my mindset and not self-sabotaging or overindulging, of course. 
Yeah, that is so interesting. Uh, on this note and kind of as a parting comment, for those listening who still kind of battle with this is good food, this is bad food, do you have any kind of reframes, kind of like what you've just shared, a, a kind of new thought we can replace instead of saying, oh, this is bad food or I shouldn't have eaten that? Um, do you have any reframe in terms of our relationship with that food? Let's just say, I don't know, it's cake or something. Yeah. The first thing that I want to say here is that I really want everybody to step into your own power. I want you all to understand that you are the only one in charge. Nobody else is coming down and governing like your experience, what your body does. And so get back in the driver's seat. Okay. And, and when you step into your power and you tell your body what to do, you get to decide what kind of experience you want. So for my clients that, you know, really struggle with having a, I had a client yesterday, she's like, I had a slice of pizza and I just don't know how to like reframe is one slice. And so if you want to live a life where you can't have a slice of pizza without feeling bad, then like continue that narrative, right? But if you want to live a life where you can have a slice of pizza, have a slice of cake, like and eat moderately and it not affect you at all, that's up to you. This is your narrative. You tell your body what to do, right? And so even just stepping into that power, I think is really important. And also recognizing, and this is kind of where we get to learn how to like think our way thin. I know everyone's listening here. I know you've had a friend who I can think of my friend growing up who could just eat whatever they want. And they, they never like over ate, but they could just eat whatever they want and like never eat a single pound. Right. And so the only difference between them and somebody who does gain more weight from food is the way that you think about it. Like there's no genetic code that says this person's going to be overweight and this one isn't. There's no gene that relates to weight. And so the only thing that makes families and generations of people overweight is the way that we think and interact with food. And you can change wow. that right now. Like you can just decide, like, I actually want to live a life where I can eat pizza moderately and that be okay. And if I'm human and somebody else who's doing this can do it, then like I can do it too. The mm -hmm. last thing I'll say on this is it's really helpful when we kind of, this is called cognitive diffusion, when we disassociate from ourselves almost um, when we are interacting with foods that are a bit more triggering. And so if you've eaten something and you don't feel good about it, I want you to think about a small child coming to you and saying like, oh, I just ate two pieces of pizza and I feel awful. What would you say to that small child? You'd be like, it's not a big deal. Like your body's going to digest that, of course. And so if we can just talk to ourselves like we would a small child and just it not make it so personal, it's very mm -hmm. easy to overcome some of these things that like we think are so bad that really aren't. Yeah. Wow. They're all really, really beautiful tips. And of course, when paired with moderate eating and, you know, all the other lifestyle factors that you've shared already today, I think is such an empowering way to take back your power like you've shared. And I just think that's so interesting that, you know, we, we talk about thoughts and emotions in terms of our mindset and our attitude and our goals. But when you talk about it in terms of the physical makeup of your body, it's potential to put on weight or not and just your overall relationship with food. I think that's so incredible, really. Um, and I've learned a lot on the show today. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on firstly. And secondly, for people to find you, connect with you, learn from you further, where's the best place they can go? And I'll pop some links in the show notes. Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram. I would say I have a website. You can, you can put it all in there and a podcast. My podcast is the head to head to heal podcast and you can Amazing. put all the links in there. Yeah. I oh, will. this was well, thank lovely. You. Thank you so much. Thank you.
No, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you coming on and I look forward to continuing to learn from you, connecting with you on Instagram, and I'm sure everyone else feels the same. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.